0: So like I said earlier, the passage that we're reading tonight is 1 Samuel 18. We're just going to read the first 16 verses. There's, I'll reference more stuff in this chapter and the following chapters, but really we're going to focus in on these first 16 verses. So again, 1 Samuel 18, uh, starting in verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and read God's word, and then I'm going to pray for his blessing on it tonight. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he made and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Now, this is God's word. I'm going to pray and ask for his blessing on it. Lord God, we come to you this evening looking at this passage about these men who lived a long time ago. And as we look at it, as we go through our day-to-day lives, there are times when it might feel difficult to see the connection, to see the ways that your word, the ways that you communicated uh, your love and grace to your people through these historical events, to see that connection. I pray that, Lord, as we we go about our day-to-day, as we go to class and study and deal with worries and anxieties and and fears and hopes and sins and lord whatever else we might be going through that you would show your grace to us that you would help us to lean not upon our own understanding but upon yours oh god that we would see your word and understand the things that you want us to understand from it i pray that you would send your holy spirit upon each of us lord we can't understand these things on our own we actually need your help I pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes to the things that you want us to know and to grasp and to understand from your word tonight. I pray especially for myself that you would give me strength and wisdom in the Holy Spirit. That you would send your spirit to me to, to enable me to talk about these things in a way that is good and true and helpful and that will build these students up. Lord, we love you and we ask your blessing upon this word and upon this time in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Has there ever been a time when you kind of realized, oh, like, I'm kind of, like, mediocre? <laughs> or, like, I'm not as good at this thing that I thought I was really good at. Um, for me, it was, it's a really easy thing I can think of. Maybe mediocrity is the wrong word, but I realized that I was not as good. I wasn't as skilled. I wasn't as talented as I thought I was. It happened when I was in seminary, which is grad school to kind of go into ministry. Before I got in seminary in kind of the first semester, I was in seminary. I really daydreamed about um, going on and getting a PhD in theology and like being a professor or something like that, kind of going on and making academia instead of ministry the thing that I really was going to do. In my first semester, I was in this class on the Gospels, the four Gospels, and it was one of those classes where the main grade that you were going to be graded on was one paper, one 20-page paper that was like the majority of everything. And so I was like, okay, I need to go all in on this paper. I need to show that I have got what it takes for academia, for grad school, for whatever. And more than that, there was also an award at my school. There's like this, uh, this, this sort of honors thing where uh, one paper from every class would get this special award, um, the best paper. And so I was like, I got get to the, get the best grade in the class. I'm going to get that award. And so I worked harder on that assignment than I ever have on any assignment, any paper that I've ever done in my entire life. Like, any school assignment from elementary up to high school, even the college, like, this was it. This was the moment. This was, like, I, I, I put more hours into this paper than anything else. And once I got my paper back, I got a 99% of it. I was like, all right, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> I thought it was a shoe-in for this thing until I saw my friend Jason's paper. Jason uh, was a buddy of mine went to school with. We started at the same time. But he had gone to law school before he went to seminary. And he like worked in law. I don't think he was a full-fledged lawyer, but he worked at like law firms and stuff, helping with uh, helping lawyers and doing stuff like that. And I looked over at his paper, and he got 105. And I knew in that moment, like I'm like, man, I'm gonna be in the same class as Jason every single semester at this school. <laughs> In that moment, I was like, I'm never gonna try this hard again. <laughs> I'm never going to do it. I'm never gonna be skilled. I'm never gonna be gifted enough to get a PhD. Like, this dude is built different. In all in all seriousness, like, I'm not saying that to like be self-deprecating or you know, pile on myself. I just like I wasn't built to do it. I just didn't. I was like, man, I like hanging out with people too much. Um, I just was not built that way. We see in this passage Saul and Jonathan experiencing something similar. They're both realizing, oh, I'm not as good at being a king, at doing the kingly stuff as David is. Literally, the verses right before this passage, David has just killed Goliath. He's killed Goliath, the giant, and he's defeated the entire Philistine army with just a sling and some pebbles. He's not wearing armor. He's not wielding a sword or a spear. He doesn't have like a host of of soldiers and elite warriors at his back. He's just a dude. He's a kid. He's a teenager. And he has just done this amazing, miraculous thing. Like, this is top-tier kingly stuff. And Saul and, and, and Jonathan are looking at David and saying, I can never be as good as him. I can't perform that way. And maybe most importantly, they're both realizing, God does not want me to be king in the way that he wants David to be. But they respond to it in very different ways. Their response is super interesting, right? Saul and Jonathan are both, both seeing the extraordinariness of God working through David, but they respond very differently. And I want you all to see tonight that it has to do with what they are trusting, with what the king of their lives is, the thing that they're looking to to be their hope, their their, their identity, their righteousness, their, to make their lives matter. And from looking at both of their lives, I want you to see this ultimately, that if Jesus is your king, if God is your king, that you can be confident about what God is doing in your life. If God is your king, if Jesus is the one who's on the throne of your heart, then you can be confident no matter what comes. No matter what difficulty, no matter what ways you might feel inadequate, Jesus is adequate enough for you. This confidence in God allows you to be humble, to receive whatever life throws at you with love towards others and humility and grace. And on the other side of things, right? Like if your confidence is in yourself, it means that when times get tough, you're going to be looking for someone to blame. You're going to turn that on yourself, or you're going to turn it on some other people. There's two aspects of tonight, two responses that I want us to study. Two responses in this passage to what God is doing in David's life and, and how that relates to the people around him. Jonathan and Saul, right? So the first point is Jonathan's faithful humility. Jonathan's faithful humility is the first thing I want us to study. And the second is Saul's faithless anxiety. So Jonathan's faithful humility, Saul's faithless anxiety. First off, Jonathan's faithful humility. Um, These stories, they happen less than 48 hours after the battle with David and Goliath. Like right away, these two things happen. We see in verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Literally, uh, David is speaking in verse uh, in chapter 17. He's introducing himself to Saul on the battlefield after he strikes down Goliath. Right after that happens, David introduces himself to Saul. As soon as he had finished speaking, this Jonathan has this response to him. It's right away that this happens. Um, and Jonathan recognizes something about David. He recognizes that God is with him, and he loves him the soul of jonathan is knit to the soul of david they are friends from the bottom of their souls together and saul took him that day and would not let him to return to his father's house it's not saying that, that saul's like being mean and keeping him from his father's house it's rather that that saul is saul's hired him on to be on his personal staff to be like his personal musician/bodyguard that's what that's what's happening here saul's like no you're you're a hero we got to have you as a part of my team And then jonathan made a covenant with david because he loved him as his own soul uh just want to rewind a little bit a little background to jonathan he's saul's firstborn son he's saul's firstborn son which means that he is the guy who's in line for the throne you call it the crown prince you can call it the heir he is the next guy who's supposed to take over after saul he's been trained for this he's been groomed for this he's probably at least 10 to 15 years older than david he's uh, the heir he has received this training, and his whole life he has prepared to be the next king. And not just that, but he actually has shown in the previous chapters that he could actually potentially be good at it. He's beaten the Philistines, like as a general and a warrior. He's shown he, he's, he's faithful to God and obeys God's commandments. He's a good guy. He's a good man. He's a good dude. He could be the next king. right? Besides Saul, Jonathan is the most important person in Israel. And he has just seen David show him and his dad up at being a king, at being a leader and a ruler of God's people. And, you know, you would expect if someone like shows you up at doing the thing that you thought you were good at, you, you might expect someone to be kind of jealous or upset. Not Jonathan. He loves David, right? The David right now, in a sense, is the person who is the, the biggest threat to Jonathan, the biggest threat to Jonathan's status in his life his livelihood. But then Jonathan doesn't respond with hostility. He makes a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. He loved David from his heart. He swears a vow, a covenant. He makes a, a promise, almost draws up like a contract with David to always be faithful and loyal to one another. Never to betray him. What would have gone into this uh, in in Old Testament times when you make a covenant, you would swear an oath with a particular way in a ceremony where you would sacrifice animals by cutting them in half. Symbolically saying, if I break the terms of this covenant, if I'm ever less than faithful or loyal to you, let me be cut in half like these animals. Something similar to this would have happened in making a covenant with David, something that Jonathan is doing because he, he sees that God is at work in David's life. He sees that David is the... The one who God has chosen to be the next king of Israel, and David and Jonathan's like, I trust God. I'm gonna go along with his plan. I love David because he is doing God's work here in Israel and for God's people. But it's not just that. In verse four, there's this really interesting thing that y'all see Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. We look at that and we're like, What what's that about? That's crazy. Uh, This is not just a nice gift. It's not not just a present because he's like, you know, we're besties now. We're going to share weapons and stuff. Um, In this world, in this culture, a lot of times, especially if someone was important, if they had an important job or office, someone's clothes, someone's uniform was a symbol of that office. Someone's clothes was the the symbolic uh, signifier of their job, of their position, of their status. So, for example, like the priest who was serving at the temple, the priests all had special outfits that were very like clearly laid out and described. And moreover, the high priest had a specific, like spe- even more special robes. But the king also had specific outfits and uniforms that were like unique to him. And also the crown prince, the heir, the guy who's the next in line to the throne. It's not just like a a, a status by blood. That's that's an office that Jonathan was carrying out. He had a specific job and responsibilities with it. And he had a uniform that went with it, a robe and these weapons. So Jonathan is not just giving David uh, some clothes, but he's taking off his symbol of royal authority, and he's handing it over to David. What Jonathan is doing here is he is, like, with his actions, is communicating, you are going to be the next guy. You are going to be the next king. I'm giving up my claim to the throne, and I'm handing it over to you. We see this, like, uh, something that's made me think of was, uh, I don't know if any of you all have watched Ted Lasso, but there's this arc where this soccer player named Roy Kent has this, he's old and he's about to retire, and one of the big things that the coach, Ted Lasso, tells him to do before he retires is, like, you need to pick the next team captain. You need to pick the next guy who's going to be the leader of our team. And he ends up deciding this guy, this, this character, this player named Isaac, and he hands over his captain's armband. And as soon as that happens, it's not just sort of a, a symbolic transition. Isaac is actually the captain once he has that armband in his hand. And once he puts it on his arm, he becomes the captain with the responsibilities and the authority that the captain has. In a similar way, that's what's happening here. Right? Jonathan recognizes that God has chosen David and not him. To be king, next. Like, this is something that for decades Jonathan has wanted. This is something that for decades Jonathan has prepared to do, to be king. And he meets David and he sees God use him to defeat the Philistines and he says, all right, like that's it. Here's my robe. Here's my crown. You're going to be king. How could Jonathan do that? Like, no one would do this on their own giving up your rightful, lawful place in line of the throne in the succession, like, I mean, it's it's almost exactly like, you know, if you're selling a house, telling your real estate agent, hey, I want to give my house for, like, $100,000 under market value. Like, no one does that. It's, it's, like, no one would do that. It's completely against his self-interest. And yet, Jonathan does it. In the ancient world, you didn't give over your rights to other claimants to the throne. You killed them. That's what you did. But that's not what Jonathan does. He's accepting his place. He's accepting God's plan. He's saying, God, you are in charge and not me. God, you are the ultimate king of my life. And so I'm going to let go of my rights. I'm going to let go of my desires. He's accepting the sideline. He's, he's accepting not being the main character of the story. Right? The story is about David, not Jonathan, and Jonathan knows it. It also makes me think of, uh, in, in the New Testament, there's a guy named John the Baptist. Who has this amazing ministry? Hundreds of people are going to him and listening to his preaching. He's baptizing them. This awesome, successful, fruitful ministry. And then one day something happens. People start leaving his ministry. They start going to a different ministry. They start going to, to hear this guy preach named Jesus. And soon there's not many people left. And some of John's followers ask him, Hey, like, what's going on? Everyone, like, you baptized Jesus. You gave him his start. All these people were flocking to him and not you. Does that bother you? Here's John's response from John chapter 3. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist is saying, yeah, like my whole ministry is about Jesus. So it's okay if I become lesser so that he can become greater. Jonathan is saying, yeah, the plan of God is to make David the king, so it's okay for him to become the king and lose out on that opportunity. You know, even in John's metaphor, right, like a wedding is not about the groomsman, it's about the bride and the groom. You and I are not the bride and the groom in the story of Jesus. Jesus is the hero. He's the main character. So I want to ask you, like, are you willing to be lesser? Are you willing to accept a place on the sidelines? If your response to weakness or failure in the Christian life is to get angry or envious of those like doing better than you, then there may be a sense in which like you are not understanding how sufficiently Jesus' salvation has become for you. There may be a sense in which you are trying to serve your own kingdom, not Jesus' kingdom. Right? The work of Jesus in your life is to be the king, to be the main character, to save you, and for you to receive it, to celebrate it, to receive his love and grace. Right? This should be comforting us for two reasons. One, because it takes the pressure off of you. Like Jesus is Lord. He is the Savior. We live in his life, not in our own. Like We stand before God in his righteousness, not our own. Our identity is shaped by his works, not our own. So it takes pressure off of you. And secondly, Jesus's love and grace is infinite. You cannot exhaust them. Everything else that you might find your identity in, it requires that you constantly are hustling and grinding to make it. Whether it's money or looks or power or reputation, you can never reach the end of them. And they also all have reference points where you compare yourselves to others. Right? You need to keep up. And ultimately, like you will fail at all of these, you will get old, you'll lose step. Someone else will be stronger, better, wealthier, more attractive. Only the grace of God in Jesus is inexhaustible. And it's something that is sustainable whether you are going through hard times or whether everything is going great. Right? If you approach Christianity basically as something that serves you to make you more attractive, wealthy, happy, you are missing the point. The point of the Christian life is to exalt Christ which we do through weakness and humility and failure and falling upon his mercy in the midst of that. Right if you feel like success all the time and you feel like failure isn't an option, I would suggest to you that there's a sense in which you are not looking to Jesus for salvation. And I would encourage you to do that. Because it's better. Because it works. Because it's sustainable. Unfortunately, that's exactly what Saul's doing. Saul's response to David is not based on faith. It's not based on confidence in God, which leads him to love and humility, but it's faithless. It's based on, on his own hunger for power, faithless anxiety, which leads to jealousy and violence, which brings me to my second point, Saul's faithless anxiety, Saul's faithless anxiety, right? Jonathan's faithful humility is contrasted immediately by the way his dad reacts to David right after coming home from beating the Philistines. So it says, uh, you know, in verse one, it says, as soon as he finished speaking to Saul, Jonathan loves David, makes this covenant with him, gives him his robe, gives over his badge of being the heir. And then as, as they were coming home, as they're coming back to Jerusalem, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, Saul hears this song that some of the women of Israel are singing. You know, that they're, they're celebrating the victory. They say Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul gets livid. He gets angry because he sees the same thing that Jonathan sees, that David is a better king than him. He's got more potential. He's already better. But he's not even at the peak of his potential. He's not yet begun to grow. And Saul gets jealous and envious. And he suspects, right, that God is going to use him to become king next. Even though David has no designs, David is perfectly honest and kind and good to Saul. And then verse 10, as soon as they got home, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushes upon Saul And he throws a spear trying to murder David in his living room. Right? Saul starts to look at him with suspicion and he starts to carry it out. He throws a spear at David and David runs away and flees. And the next two chapters, 18, 19, 20, are full of six assassination attempts that Saul tries to make on David. He throws a spear at David three different times. And it doesn't work any time. (laughs) David's too quick, he's too fast. There are two times that Saul basically gives David suicide missions. Like, hey, go kill X amount of Philistines by yourself. Go kill 100 Philistines. David goes and kills 200. No problem. It fails. David's too good. God is with David, protecting him and caring for him. Finally, Saul kind of throws his hands up, and he, he sends a hit squad. He sends assassins to come to David's house in the night and to murder him in his bed. And uh, David's wife, who is actually Saul's daughter, protects him and and allows him to slip away and to escape. God uses the friendship that David has with Saul and the love that he has with Saul's daughter to prevent Saul's schemes from actually working. In this first scheme, right, like this is really the one that we're mostly going to talk about. It comes less than a couple days after David had beaten Goliath. He had just like really saved Saul. He brought Saul out, like he he brought victory from the jaws of defeat. Saul was not going to beat Goliath. And David wins that battle for him. He wins the battle for Israel. And, and Saul's reaction pretty much immediately is, we got to get this dude out of here. we got to kill this guy. He's a problem. He's a threat. He's a threat to me and to my throne and to my crown. But why does Saul do this? He recognizes that God is working through David. Like, just as much as Jonathan does, Saul recognizes that God is making David the next king. And he hates it. He can't stand it he sees god's work and he says no thank you i don't want to stop it if i can't that's what saul's doing here right he recognizes that god is working through david but instead of humbly trusting in god like his son jonathan saul decides to try and protect himself and his own kingdom by any means necessary even if it means murdering a young man who had only shown himself to be brave and good and kind he basically says morality love kindness Fairness, loyalty, all those things are going out the window if my kingdom is being threatened. That's what Saul's doing here. <clears throat> He's showing that he doesn't really believe that God is God. Right? Like if he really believed in God, if he really believed that God was for him, then he would not act this way. Like Saul's real God, his real idol is political power, military might, and economic prosperity, things of this world. Right? Saul is saying with his actions, I cannot lose. If I lose the power, if I lose my throne, then my life will be meaningless. Nothing will be good. So I have to, by any means necessary, stop David from being king. So he rejects God and he substitutes an idol instead. He doesn't really believe God is God. He doesn't love God. He doesn't love Israel even. He just loves power. He loves himself. He's selfish. There's a movie that came out in the 80s called Amadeus. Most of you probably have not seen it, but it's a fictionalized story of two composers who lived in the 1700s. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, the movie is named for that. But the main character really is a guy named uh, Antonio Salieri, who was this Italian guy. Most, you know, I've never heard of him before I watched this movie. This is one of those movies that, like, I-, I did chorus in high school, and anytime that the teacher was gone, she would put on this movie or like The Music Man or like Run of the Titans. It's a weird combination, but uh, so I've seen like the first. Three quarters of this movie, probably five or six times. Um, So Salieri, he's this guy. He's grown up his whole life. He's just wanted to be a composer. He's wanted to make beautiful music. And in the movie, he prays to God and makes a deal with God and says, "God, if you make me a composer, I will always be faithful and kind and like a good person." And it happens. Like he's he's able to be a composer. And he's kind of like he's kind of famous. He's kind of not, but he he's not as good as he wants to be. He has some success. And then Salieri hears about this new young composer named Mozart who's, like, changing the game. And he goes and he meets Mozart, and he's blown away for two reasons. One is Mozart is way better at being a musical composer than he is. Mozart is phenomenally better. Like, just natural talent, amazing, creative, changing all the rules, breaking all the rules, but in such a way that's, like, beautiful and amazing. And the second thing that he's blown away by is that uh, Mozart is kind of sucks from his perspective. <laughs> like Mozart is rude and vulgar, and, uh, and 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 from Salieri's perspective, he's like, you don't deserve the talent that you have, and he gets jealous, and he basically renounces God, and he, he, he's like, God, how could you do this? How could you give such a person that that is undeserving such natural talent and gifts? And so he renounces God. And basically, he's like, I'm going to try to get back at God by destroying Mozart's reputation in his life. And the whole rest of the movie is him basically like gaslighting Mozart and trying to manipulate him, but also like trying to poison and murder him. And in the end, right, like you see his true colors by how he responds to, to a situation where someone's better than him. Salier didn't love God, and he didn't even really love music. Like, If he really loved music and beauty, he would just be happy that someone was out there making good the music. But Salieri was like, no, I have to be the one. What he really loved was himself, his own kingdom, his own power, his own status, his own reputation. In fact, his kingdom of pride was the idol, was the thing that he was serving, the thing that he loved. In a similar way, God has, or Saul has rejected Saul, or Saul has rejected God, excuse me. And in doing so, he's acting like it's all on him to maintain the thing that's most important to him, which is him being king. He's willing to do anything to keep it. We're gonna see, I don't know that we'll necessarily look specifically at the passages, but if you read the rest of 1 Samuel, you will see Saul murder hundreds of innocent people to maintain his grip on power. You will see him commit horrible acts to maintain his grip on power. In the end, it's not gonna work, like, it's it's not gonna matter. God is going to make David the king. Right, Saul just gets more and more wicked. All because he is too insecure and faithless to say, God. I trust you, it's okay if David is king instead. Of me. Like Jonathan. I mean, they're losing the same thing. It's crazy. Saul and Jonathan both stand to lose the exact same thing to David: the throne. The kingship. Right? David had been kind and righteous and good to both of them. He had shown love and loyalty to both Saul and Jonathan. He had defeated Goliath for both of them. Like they were both there. They were both like the, the people who benefited from that victory. But one responds to David with love and humility, and the other one responds to David with jealousy and hatred. Why? I mean, you can answer that by what is the thing that they worshipped. Jonathan worships God, and so he knows that his salvation, his life is secure in God's hands. Saul worships himself and power, and so he feels like he has to do anything he can to maintain his grip on power and authority. And the same thing is true when someone encounters Jesus. Like people in the New Testament, when they encounter Jesus, they there's not a lot of like middle ground. Very few people are just kind of like neutral. They're either like you were you were God, or they try to kill him. And a similar way with us, we can respond to the things that God is doing in our lives with faithfulness and faithfulness and, and humility, or faithlessness and insecurity. Right? We're tempted when we see failure or weakness, or when we see someone else succeeding. Or when we when we look at the ways that God calls us to be faithful in the midst of in ways that are difficult whether denying ourselves pleasures or maybe missing out on things so that we can focus on our spiritual lives, we're tempted to respond with resentment and envy and insecurity seeking to, to hold on to the things of our lives and the things of our kingdom just, just in one, one kind of instance think about worry and fear like, think about what what worries you what do you spend time worrying about, feeling anxious about, fretting about? What are you afraid of happening in your life? Are you worried because it's something worth worrying about? I'm not saying there's nothing, you know, that we shouldn't, like, think about and plan for and be wise about. But, you know, what what are the things that worry you, that keep you up, that keep you from enjoying the blessings that God is giving you, that, that keep you from resting from your schoolwork and investing in spiritual things? What are the things that keep you up at night, that, that that really are tearing you apart? Right? Are you worried about something that's worth worrying about, or are you worried about your own kingdom? Are you worried about trying to make your way and make your life apart from God? Are you worried about trying to find your life apart from the love of Jesus, which allows you to be humble and weak failures? Like the love of Jesus meets you where you are. The grace of God says this, that you and I are not enough in ourselves. We're not the main characters of our lives. We need a Savior. And God sent Jesus for just this purpose. David's descendant, Jesus, who God sent to live a perfect life for you and me, to go to the cross and to die the death that we deserve to die, God has made that sacrifice available to be effective for whoever receives it. If you're here tonight and you're you're relating to Saul and you're, you're, you're seeing his anxiety and insecurity about something that is valuable and precious to him in his life falling away, I would invite you to, to look upon Christ I know that in him Jesus has given you a life and a value and a worth that is, that is imperishable, a glory that is never fading. God sent Jesus just for this purpose that for all who believe in him, for all who look to him, that their righteousness, that, 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 that he would give them his righteousness, and that you would be saved. Right? Jesus was willing to be humble and lowly. Right? It's not, John, not 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 just Jonathan. Something that we, I mean, one reason why we can love Jonathan is that he reminds us of Jesus in his humility. He points us to Jesus in the way that he he's willing to go low, while David is exalted. Jesus was born into this world to die, and people either loved or rejected him. Right? He was provocative too. But his life was different than David's. His life was different than David's. First off, he was was sinless, obviously. He was the son of God. David's life points to Jesus. But the big difference, I think, from this passage is that um, when the spear came at Jesus, he didn't dodge. The spear was thrust into Jesus' side, and he died. David lives on. He'll die of old age eventually. Jesus died violently, painfully first being nailed to a cross and a spear being thrust into his side. At the cross, he received all of God's just punishment for sin for those who believe in him. And as we look at David and we look at his descendant, Jesus, one thing that we should take away is that we should be willing to be weak. Because God says in his word, that it is in in weakness that his power is made perfect. That his grace is sufficient for us. It's only faith in Jesus that allows us to live this way. Let's pray and ask him to help us to do that. Lord God,